Welcome to the Pinkcast, the Pink Elephant podcast series dedicated to leading the way in IT best practices. Hello, my name is Troy Dumoulin, and today's topic is process ownership, the key to process success. We're going to be covering three important topics today. Process in the traditional organization. How does that relate to organizational design? Second, the role of the process owner. And then finally, common process combinations. So let's start with topic number one, traditional organizational design as opposed to processes which cross organizational silos or divisions. So how did we end up with the designs we have today? It all goes back actually to the earliest stages of the Industrial Revolution. The fathers of industry and commerce and manufacturing found themselves with a unique and challenging issue. You see, they had large and complex organizations to run. However, the workforce that needed to run those plants were largely unskilled labor that had recently come in from the cottage industries. The specific challenge that they had was that they had to take this unskilled workforce, train them in such a way that they would create complex end results. The classic example of this is the creation of the assembly line for the Model T Ford. Now, consider how do you take an unskilled workforce and build a complex output, which is in essence a process of a thousand plus steps to build a car. What you do is you take an individual and you give him or her a specific task to do. And this specific task is all that they do. In fact, they're not paid to do anything else. And you break these tasks into logical and sequential steps, which have to be then overseen or governed by a foreman. And that foreman knows a few extra steps on either side. And then a manager on top of that, which understands the set of groupings of steps. And then a senior manager, which understands then again another larger set. And then finally, you build this overall hierarchy of management, which allows you to glue together this process, which you've artificially separated into distinct and very unique steps. The end result of this organizational process is the creation of large silos, or stovepipes, if you will, focused on a certain section of an overall process. This is exactly what we have when we look at the IT organizations we find today. First of all, you have very large silos like application development versus infrastructure. And then each of those are again subdivided into various units. In the infrastructure world, we have a database group or a server group or network group, largely structured around a platform or domain, if you will. The end result of this strategy is a very interesting perspective that each individual believes that their job is entailing only the specific task that has been given to them. The analogy you can use here is the individual on the manufacturing or auto line that's been told, your job is to put brake pedals on cars. And that's all you're supposed to do. That's all you're paid to do. And you shouldn't concern yourself with anything else to the right or left. That's your job. In essence, what we see there is everybody else's activity, or if they're asked to participate in anything else, such as a process, is deemed as someone else's job or a favor that they're doing for someone else. So this is where we come up with this view of my job is to manage the box. My job is to manage the application. Anything else I do is someone else's task that I'm helping out with. The challenge with this is that none of these domains, which are built by individual components or configuration items or IT assets actually live in isolation, but we treat them and manage them as if they do. In fact, you could almost say that we have this mythical view that these domains somehow are isolated. 
However, we understand from a service management perspective that no service ever really lives within a single domain. So if a service cannot be understood to be within a single domain, the processes which support them also have to be understood as crossing all of the organizational structures within a specific design or function. So when we have processes that cross our traditional organizational structures, we need a control mechanism or a definition at least enabled to manage them. Any process has an input, which is raw data that has to be fed into it. It thereby has activities that takes this raw data and transforms it into an output, whatever the expected outcome is. And to do that, there are roles involved in those activities. There are controls that make sure that those roles enact the activities according to the proper policy, and there are measurements to understand the quality of that output, and finally there is oversight, governance, or ownership, call it what you may, that is accountable for the process design, the process awareness, and the process advocacy. Which brings us to our second question. What is the role of the process owner? Well, I've already given a hint in the three activities of process ownership. So what is design? The fact is, everything is managed and produced by a process. Be that dirty dishes being washed in a sink, be that automobiles being made on a shop floor, or be that IT services being provided to the customer to support business processes. Everything has an input, everything has an activity, everything has an output, and roles that enact upon it. So the key element here is to create a design that is effective and efficient for the organization, not too bureaucratic, but also not ad hoc or chaotic that we can't trust the consistent output of that process. The process owner, understanding all of the roles which are in these different cross-functional groups, is accountable to ensure that the process itself meets the fit-for-purpose design requirements that the organization has for it. That usually means involving all the stakeholders in the design which have a part in the activities to produce the output. So organizational awareness is the next one. So if I have a process that's been designed by a representative group from various functions, I need to deploy that process so that everyone understands, first of all, the policies, the process activities, the measures, the roles, and specifically the roles in related to the person executing that activity. So that process has to be initially deployed, but then Continuous improvement will make modifications, and those modifications, again, have to be made aware or deployed into the organization. We'll have new employees, and so we'll need to incorporate the process education in an onboarding exercise to understand or have a new employee understand their place in this new process. So organizational understanding or awareness of the process is an ongoing activity and accountability of the process owner. Now, it's important to understand that accountability does not necessarily mean responsibility. Accountable means I'm accountable that it gets done. Responsible is the person who is actually doing it. The third activity of process ownership is advocacy. Advocacy refers to the political protection or the championship of the process within the organization. They're promoting the process to others. They're selling the process. They're ensuring the process is not bypassed or they're dealing with escalation issues around process compliance. Without this advocacy or process championship, the process can falter and very rarely will you see it succeed. Now, an interesting element to note is that while you can delegate the design, you can delegate also the organizational awareness, 
you can never delegate advocacy. And this is very important for organizations which have a larger scaled process where they need additional roles. Let's say we have an overall corporate process owner, we might have a regional process manager, or we might have process managers by business units. The key thing here is advocacy always stays with a single individual, whereas the design and perhaps the awareness can be also delegated to further roles down the structure. Now this brings us to our last question, common process combinations. Now casually reading through the ITIL literature, you might come away with the impression that every process needs a discrete and single owner. And you might be wondering, well, how will I ever come up with the headcount or the justification or the funding to have all of these process owners in place. The key point here is that the number of process owners is largely dependent on the scale of your process, the size of your organization, and perhaps the transactional volume of activity that flows through it. For most organizations, they can find a couple of processes which they can place within the hands or ownership of a single individual. The challenge is that not all processes are equal in their pairing or partnership. Let's start with processes which are traditionally seen as more difficult to combine. For example, incident and problem management. Now this specific pairing often has a lot of controversy around it because on the surface it would appear that incident and problem management have no direct conflict of interest and perhaps from that view they're not necessarily a bad combination. The challenge with incident and problem management is not so much conflict of interest but it's in the focus of activity or task. Incident being focused on getting the service up and running as quickly as possible spends a lot of its time in a reactive firefighting mode to restore service where problem by its nature is supposed to take a more holistic 50,000 foot view of what are all of the issues happening around the environment how do I identify trends and patterns within this data that I'm receiving and how do I understand where I can apply from a Pareto analysis a small amount of improvement to get a great amount of return benefit to eliminate systemic environmental issues permanently instead of fixing them in a temporary fashion. A very typical response or result when you combine incident and problem is that the resources or staff applied to both processes spend the great proportion of their time in a firefighting mode never truly being allowed to take that holistic view that problem management needs. So this is why it's not necessarily a good thing to combine incident and problem in that problem suffers by the very nature of the need of the incident process. I know some organizations for example that they'll identify the large incidents or the crisis or the uh, major incident process to be run by the problem management staff. Again they spend a lot of their time running or hosting these uh, event or major incident processes not then having the time they need to focus on the objectives and activities of problem management. Let's look at another perhaps difficult combination, change and problem management. Problem, as we've already said, is really trying to find the systemic permanent fix for issues which are affecting services usually in a repeatable fashion. Whereas change is trying to minimize the impact of changes on the production environment which in essence is the user experience. So one process is trying to put things in place, the other one's ensuring the correct application and scheduling of those uh, changes. Perhaps we have a conflict of interest here. So now let's look at some positive or stronger combinations. The classic one we can think of here is changing configuration management. Change in essence is the teeth required to implement a 
configuration management process. For example, if you would were to ask the average IT employee or individual, do they believe it's their responsibility to manage and keep track of the data under their control? Very few people would actually say, no, that's not my responsibility. However, the reality is that most organizations have very poor data management practices. So how do we fix this? Well, one requirement is that for configuration management, the data has to be trustworthy and useful for management decision making. So what we can do here is develop a policy such as every change must have a configuration item or record attached to it. And the change cannot move from the status, let's say, complete to closed until we have a verification that the update to the configuration management database has actually occurred. So in this situation, we're having change drive compliance and improve the integrity of the CMDB. Another good example is release management. Release is trying to establish the qualification and production readiness of a new element being introduced to the production environment or a modification of one that is currently there. So how do we know when a thing has been tested appropriately? How do we know when enough of the requirements have been met that we truly have a production element component here? Well, without change management asking these questions and ensuring that release qualification activities have been complete, then we can have things being placed into production which are not ready. Again, change and release are excellent combinations because change drives compliance for release management. Availability capacity, very close processes where we have a technology view, not just from a platform perspective, but an enterprise level understanding of what are the things we need to do to improve overall availability and also have enough capacity in relationship to not over-utilizing capacity or under-utilizing capacity. Service level and financial management are also very good mixes here because one of the interesting things that people often find is that they begin by talking about services. It's very difficult to do service level management unless you've defined services. Well, the first question is, what is your service? You can pretty much expect the second question out of your customer's mouth to be, how much does that service cost? So while financial management is more than IT costing and recovery, it is a great percentage of that. So service level, the process by which we define services and catalog those services and get agreement around those services, and financial management, in particular the perspective of IT costing, what is the costing and recovering mechanism around those services are very good combinations, if you will. Availability and problem are often very good combinations as well. In fact, availability management, which has as its overall objective to ensure and improve and obtain the appropriate level of availability for IT services, has more in common with problem management than problem has with incident. Or problem is looking at all of the incident data and trying to understand by removal of systemic environmental issues which result in incidents, how do I improve availability? So many organizations will identify that problem management and availability management are fantastic to combine under the guise of one process owner. And finally, availability and IT service continuity. Right there again, we have very common objectives. Availability is designed proactively to ensure appropriate availability, gather data about what the availability is and make modifications either short or long term. IT service continuity is in the event of a specific event or crisis or disaster, how do I run my plan to recover in accordance to the availability requirements that I do need in a disaster uh, perspective? All of these are strong combinations. So again, in summary, 
how many process owners you have will be largely dependent on the scale of your process, the size of your organization, and the number of transactions which flow through the activities of your process. So let's wrap up here. Again, we've looked at the process owner being a critical governance role to put in place this horizontal process which is tying together these various vertical organizational structures to support horizontal services. We understand that this process owner has three specific activities that they're accountable for. Design of that process, organizational awareness, and then finally advocacy for that process. Well, I hope you found today's podcast interesting and perhaps uh, useful for your ITIL or service management journey. The topic we've discussed today is well documented in our Atlas Information Service. Pink Elephant has spent years documenting and collecting information on process governance as well as specific process roles and responsibilities. For more information about Pink Elephant or about our Atlas service, please visit us at our website, www.pinkelephant.com. 